You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with just one co-host, Aaron Lammer. How are you, sir? The uh, recent, uh, the floodwaters have receded from my basement studio here in Williamsburg, and uh, we are left with the uh, faint scent of sewage. <laughs> yeah, it's a little musty, but uh, it's fine. Evan is in Mexico. Hope Evan's enjoying himself. Mexico. Uh, who'd you have on the show this week? Uh, this week on the show, I had uh, Jenny O'Dell. Uh, she is an artist. She's based out in Oakland, and uh, she does work that's, I don't know, it's very hard for me to just it. Multidisciplinary. Yeah, it, she does really brilliant stuff around uh, the line between our digital and physical worlds, and uh, she has a book. It's called How to Do Nothing. Uh, it came out of a talk she gave in the wake of the 2016 election, and it's about many, many things, uh, but it's primarily about the sort of attention economy and how we are all working all the time now. We're all optimizing all the time and uh, how we might be able to break that. She also wrote that, um, I think it was in the Times, that story about all of those weird fake Amazon storefronts that led to other Amazon storefronts to strange organizations. Yeah, strange organizations that uh, then bought Newsweek magazine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, she wrote that. It was uh, in November in the Times, and it was on our like best of the year list. I loved that story, even though I can't explain it. It was just, it is, it's a crazy story. And uh, we talked about uh, whether or not she thinks it's journalism, like whether it was reporting, and also about how you take a 50-minute speech and make a book out of it. Um, and it was interesting. I think it was the first time that I've I've had someone on the show who would define themselves as an artist who happened to have written a book, uh, and she thinks about that process a lot differently than than other people do. If you want to think about how books are written, no better place than the Decatur Book Festival. Our own Evan Ratliff will be there. Uh, Jenna Wortham is picking all the writers this year. It's going to be a great selection of people. Uh, you can find out more about it at readthesummer.com. Readthesummer.com. Jenna Wortham has picked uh, a dozen authors who are coming to the Decatur Book Festival. Evan's going to be there giving like multiple talks. Uh, you should go check it out. I think it's it's uh, early September in Atlanta. Thanks uh, to MailChimp. But in other Evan Ratliff sighting news, Evan was a guest on my other podcast, Coin Talk. Uh, talking about a uh, rumor that has been dominating the internet that the subject of his book, The Mastermind, might also be Satoshi Nakamoto, 
the uh, creator of Bitcoin. Stay tuned for that on the uh, the other feeds. But now here's Max and Jenny O'Dell. I've listened to that one. It's great. Hey, Jenny. Hi. <laughs> thanks for um, coming on the uh, podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, the last couple of days with your book and with the uh, piece you did about the watches and the Amazon storefronts. I've like really been living in the uh, in the world of Jenny O'Dell for the last couple of days. <laughs> and here's the thing that happened, particularly when I read your book, uh, is that it it, um, uh, it broke my brain a little bit. <laughs> That's great. I mean, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it broke it, I think, in a good yeah. way. I mean, like, uh, it's like a pretty feeble organ, so it breaks breaks <laughs> easily. But uh, it broke. It legit uh, broke, and, and uh, I was thinking about things in a way I had not before. And it, <laughs> it made me wonder how your brain is doing. Oh, that's a really good question. Um, it's great for the most part, but I do think that sometimes I exhaust myself with various wormholes and, like being curious about too many things at the same time. Well, that's kind of why I was asking. Like, um, again, there's this experience you have, like reading someone's work, like back to back to back to back, where it, um, it just feels like a lot. Perhaps yeah. like these were things that were like over five or six years for yeah. you or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then I read them all in like the span of 72 hours. <laughs> uh, so, you know, there's just a lot <laughs> yeah. when you when you condense it. But yeah, it made me wonder about like um, how you sort of like can find the energy or what it does to your brain when um, you're that open to wormholes. Yeah, I think that in the moment of working on something, I'm never thinking that I'm tired. But then as soon as I'm done, I realize that like everything I was doing was totally unsustainable. <laughs> um, so, I mean, my best example is when I was an artist in residence at Recology SF, which was otherwise you know known as The Dump. And they have a really great artist residency program there. And it's three, I think three months long. And then you have a show at the end. And my project was called the Bureau of Suspended Objects. And I just researched, I, I pulled 200 things out of the dump and was researching them as I was going along. And the research became more and more monomaniacal where it started out with just like, I just want an address of where this was made. That was my main question. Then it was like address, well, like what does the factory look like? What are all the physical details I can get about the factory? Why was this thing even made? Are there commercials for it on YouTube? Like, basically, like, what is all the information that I can find about this object? Then that times 200. Right. You basically made a phone book. Yeah. It's really, the book is huge. Um, And, of course, I had, you know, storing all the objects, too, and making these little, you know, very bureau-type tags that you could scan and get all the information. And... It really did towards the end when I was trying to wrap everything up in time for the show feel like the stamina was involved in some way. And I didn't necessarily like pace myself in any reasonable way and was just really, really like tired afterward. I think I like just don't have the ability to modulate my curiosity. Yeah. It's just like on or off. How often is it off? Uh, <laughs> actually, maybe never. <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it. Um <laughs> Well, I will. I do think that maybe a better way of putting it is like I think there are times when I'm kind of taking things in in a more general way. Like right now, I'm doing all this research around the like the history of the idea that time is money. That's like really general. So I'm just reading a lot of books, even though I guess I read in a really intense way. But I'm not producing anything right now. How um, do you read? I <laughs> I just like don't do anything else. 
I just like read for really long periods of time. It, I usually read at the Rose Garden that I mentioned in my book, um, which has really not ergonomic benches. <laughs> um, and so maybe after like an hour, I will like change positions or something just, you know, like to not feel totally horrible. But um, and then I tend to use like an entire pack of stickies on one book. Mm-hmm. And then I go back and I type up all of those quotes. Whether you're reading the book for work or for pleasure. Because, yeah, I don't know if it's going to be work in the future. So, Well, that's I think that's kind of what I was trying to ask about, like how your brain is doing. Just yeah. check in with your brain for a second. Uh, so maybe this is a stretch, and, and if it is, just uh, sort of shrug me off. But, like, what's the connection in your mind between this book that you wrote, which is really, in, it's about many things, but one of them is trying to take back your time for yourself and not have it be for your employer or for like some giant tech company how does that interact if at all with this experience that you have where you're like always kind of working yeah right it's like in in a way i'm doing the opposite of what i'm recommending yeah a little bit that's kind of what i'm asking about (laughs) yeah but i also think i i have a really unusual and highly you know privileged life situation where my work is something that I find meaningful, which is the vast majority of people don't like their jobs. Um, and also even things like the fact that my actual job is that I teach, right? And like part of teaching for me is always kind of being on the lookout for things that might be interesting to my students. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like there are various sort of weird structural things about my life that make this kind of complicated. Right. But it works for you. Yeah. I do think that maybe I still need to learn how to actually take a break. <laughs> so, yeah. How is, uh, so your book came out in April. Mm-hmm. And my sense is that uh, you have done quite a bit of like publicity for it. Lots of yeah. interviews and articles and uh, stuff. There's just been a lot of stuff. How does that fit with that question? Like my sense is that you know, you've been a resident at all these places and uh, have produced these things at the end of these residencies. Uh, you've been teaching at Stanford for years, but the book feels slightly different to me than those. Like it's a product that mm-hmm. is for sale in a yeah. pretty active way and that you are involved in the sales process. Does that feel like work? Yeah, it definitely does. Um, and I honestly didn't think about it that much going into it. I was just so excited to write about this thing that I I kind of wasn't thinking past like pub date. <laughs> mm-hmm. And also at the time, it is true, it, it's different because it, it is a more straightforwardly a product than other things I've made. But for some reason, that also didn't occur to me at the time because my process in researching and writing the book felt so similar to everything else I had done, like picking up little pieces of things and arranging them and moving them around until you're happy. That describes all of my work. Um, And so I've honestly been like surprised by this part of it. Maybe I shouldn't be, um, but I thought that writing the book would be the hard part, but it's not. This has been the hard part? I think so, yeah. How so? Because, and this is probably just peculiar to me, like I talk in the book about how I really like art that is almost like an empty space. You know, John Cage 433 is literally like silence, right? And then I have all those examples of like, you know, my friend Scott Pollock, who just roped off an area in San Diego and ushered people into seats to watch the sunset. And then they applauded and were served refreshments. Like 
all of my favorite things are these framing devices where almost like an egoless framing device and then the artist kind of steps away and just lets whatever happen happen in that space and that's how I wrote the book and I'm really comfortable with that like the kind of like I made this little garden or something and like I'm gonna leave so you can walk around in it and these things can just grow and I didn't make any of those things I just kind of arranged them there Mm -hmm. and that's really different than being like identified with a book if that makes sense like as a person as if like I can answer for this thing is 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 what you're saying that um the way you thought of the book was that you would create it and walk away and instead you created it and then had to explain it yeah I think that's maybe part of it and um and not just explain it but be thought of as like responsible for it I mean I am responsible for it definitely but like really very strongly identified with it in a way that I actually don't strongly identify with it. What's the gap? Uh, between me and, and it? Yeah. Um, or like w- between the, w- the way you are identified with it and the way that you yourself identify with it. I mean, so to go back to the dump, this is maybe a better example. Um, the dump has a rule for artists that you can't You can't uh, forage for things in the dump and then just turn around and sell them on eBay because there's actually like lots of crates. There's like Eames chairs in the dump, you know, but you can obviously sell your work. So if you're an artist who makes sculpture and you find a bunch of things in the dump and you make them into a sculpture, that's your art now. So it's yours and you can sell it. My project, I think, was one of the first ones where that became a really interesting conceptual question because I didn't make anything. I just pulled things out of the dump and I researched them. So in a way, like I attached some significance to them. And I, you know, I, it was my idea to put up shelves and, and put the objects on there. And I definitely did a lot of work. But as I mentioned in the book, there was a woman at the opening who was like, did yeah. you actually make anything or did you, do you just put things on shelves? And I was like, oh, no, I just put things on shelves. Like, that's actually a really <laughs> great description of like what I do. I'm a shelf putter. Yeah. And that's how I identify as an artist. And to me, the whole... The whole appeal of that exhibition was that I not only obviously didn't make those objects, the stories that I found about those objects were so much more interesting than anything I could ever possibly make. Hey, I'm going to put Jenny on hold for a second. We got a sponsor, and I'd like to tell you about them. The sponsor is Substack. Substack is a publishing platform. It lets writers make money from subscriptions. This week's featured Substack writer, none other than Heather Haverleski, former long-form guest, also a former Read This Summer guest when Evan and I curated that list. Heather is the best. And also, she's the publisher of Ask Molly. It's found at askmolly.substack.com. Heather, as I'm sure you know, is uh, an essayist. She's an author. She writes the Ask Polly advice column for The Cut. She has a book. It's called How to Be a Person in the World. She has uh, helped me figure out how to be a person in the world. She can do the same for you. On her Substack, uh, Molly dishes out wisdom on topics such as how to stay married, how to endure oldness, or how to deal with exes. You can subscribe to Ask Molly for a 20% discount by going to askmolly.substack.com slash longform. That's askmolly.substack.com slash longform. Thanks very much to Substack for sponsoring the show. You really can't do better than Heather's newsletter. Go check it out. Let's get back to Jenny. 
So the book was born out of a talk that you gave in the wake of the 2016 election. And it might be helpful at this point if you could just kind of give people the overview of what that talk was. And, and then I'm interested in, in how that, you know, a 50 minute speech becomes a book. So I gave the original How to Do Nothing talk in 2017. And the conference that I gave it at is called IO, spelled E-Y-E-O. It tends to be a lot of kind of like art and technology people. So, um, you know, definitely people who are working with digital media, but also just people who make and write things. And I thought that there was some maybe chance that people there were feeling the same way that I was feeling, which was I've been making all this stuff for a while and all of a sudden I don't know what to make because everything that I do seems insignificant. And it was just kind of a... I don't know how to describe it. It's like a that that painting the scream. <laughs> it's kind of how I I feel about that talk. Where it's just me like expressing this like rage and desperation and paralysis, and then noticing that um, certain very specific characteristics of social media are actually encouraging that, like not only not helping but encouraging it and running off of that, and and that within the sort of larger scheme of the, the the idea that one needs to be constantly available or reachable, constantly expressing oneself, um, that you have now 24 potentially monetizable hours rather than eight-hour workdays, and that this rose garden that I had been spending all this time in doing nothing at the time like basically became the symbol of like a pocket of unappropriated space, like space that has not been appropriated by capitalism <laughs> or the, the need to produce results. Like it's a uh, a space of contemplation and maintenance and observation. So, yeah, that's pretty much. And then I ended it by uh, playing a recording. I think it was like a two-minute recording of Thunder. Yeah. Not my recording. And we all just sat there <laughs> with that. Um, yeah, so that was the talk. What was the reaction to it? I got a really good response. A couple of people told me that they cried during the Thunder part of it, which... Part of the reason I played it, which I, I say in the talk, was that I had had that reaction. I was on a train, on Caltrain, which goes through the peninsula, like very Silicon Valley route. I was coming back from Stanford, and this was well before 2016. And Joe, my boyfriend, had sent me this podcast that included this recording by Gordon Hempton of Thunder. And he's an acoustic ecologist, so it's a really good recording. And like being in that really compressed space of the train... And then also super just compressed by like stress and like all these things that I think I need to do and uh, all these like supposed problems in my life. And then hearing like hearing space, because if you listen to that recording with headphones, like it's like your body can sort of like remember what it's like to be in a big empty space. And like I think I started crying. So I think I just like, you know, I was trying to communicate that feeling to other people. And I think especially people who grew up in the Midwest um, who know that feeling. And we're about to have, you know, thunderstorm today. So. Yeah, it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there were people in the in the room who were super affected. And then, I, and then you put the sort of text of the talk and the images on Medium. And my sense is that it resonated with people, not just people from the Midwest. And I, I mean, I read it, I think, when um, it went up. And my experience of it was it, sort of named all of these things that hadn't quite been named. And also it felt to me like inspiring and, and some kind of call to arms and that it also had it had some relationship to self-help. And I'm wondering 
uh, how you think about that? Like, is the talk in the, in the book, where does, where does it fit with self-help? Um, I really like Malcolm Harris's blurb on my book, which he says it's self-help for the collectively minded. And I think that really gets at this ambiguous relationship that I have with self-help. So I, you know, it's definitely not a straightforward self-help book. I think you might actually end up more confused by the end than when you started. Um, and it's sort of like the opposite of the quick fix. It's like just kind of long and convoluted and doesn't really give you any like straight recommendations at the end. But something that I think a lot about is if if you embrace the kind of model of the self that I talk about in the middle of the book, which is that it's actually really hard to draw a hard line between yourself and not you. Of course, you know, if you follow all your algorithmic recommendations, like you will kind of eventually end up as this like stable personal brand, um, which I compare to like being dead. Um, (laughs) But the opposite of that is like being sort of porous and and recognizing that you are this kind of shape shifting thing that changes according to different influences and things will change your mind. And this is like the equivalent of like growing and evolving. So if you accept that, like what is self-help in that context? If mm-hmm. if the self is a a thing that's defined in relationship to other selves, then self-help almost becomes like an impossible idea. It becomes more like, okay, like adjusting one's relationship to a community or like adjusting how hard that line is around yourself. But I think the standard idea of self-help takes that bounded self for granted, which is what I really don't like about it because I think it treats you like a customer. This is some versions of self-help, right? Like, you know, one weird trick to help you be more productive, like that kind of Mm self-help kind of proposes that you could be squeezing more value out of your life or you could be getting more out of your time and it doesn't do anything to trouble the boundaries of the self. Even when they say things like try new things, it means to like try new things so that you as a form of self-improvement right. for and yourself. <laughs> I mean, part of the distinction is just um, around like optimization. Yeah. And optimization for what and to what end. Yeah. Like traditional self-help gives you that goal and it pushes you in that direction. And it's like, once you've reached that goal, like you will have basically gotten your money's worth for this book. Right. right. Um, and uh, I'm I'm trying to sort of distance the way that I talk about helping oneself from that. Do you think that it has been received differently than that? I mean, it's always hard with anything that is a product, right? Like a book included. One of the things that I find morbidly fascinating about capitalism in general is like how consistently and creatively it can turn anything into a commodity. I mean, like capitalism can turn anti-capitalism into a commodity. (laughs) Like it's just (laughs) amazing. And it doesn't take that long anymore. It takes like, depending on what it is, like three days, right? Like, um, and so anything that, you know, gets put out into that context, there's going to be an inevitable process of kind of contraction into this product with obvious uses and like useful reasons why you would consume something. And there isn't really anything I can do about that. I mean, I just tried to write the book in a kind of odd shape that once you pick it up and open it sort of resists that Mm -hmm. but that's kind of the only part that i really have control over what's your like quick definition of do nothing basically anything that's not goal directed Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I often use the word observation or wandering. I think like the difference between walking somewhere to get there on time or just going for a walk is probably maybe the easiest example. So if you go for a walk, it doesn't matter. Isn't really, I mean, you're going to end up at home, like in a lot of cases, if you're going for a walk Um, and you're definitely not trying to go on the most efficient route, you might actually be trying to go on the most inefficient route. And there is nothing to do on a walk. Like that's the walking is the point. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, my other go to example is bird watching. Obviously, I'm really into birds um, because you can have some idea of what birds you might see and you might, you know, travel a long distance to see a specific type of bird. But there's still no way to determine in advance what it is you're going to see. And I mean, I remember there was a day where I was visiting my parents down south and we were my dad and I were biking through an area that I know has great blue herons in it. And I was really hoping that we would see one and we didn't. And then the next day I was at school, like on the roof of the art building at Stanford in the middle of a conversation with someone like while I was like in a huge hurry and a great blue heron flew like right over both of our heads. (laughs) I was like, what? Of course, (laughs) you know, Um, and I just like, I don't know, like that moments like that. I I really appreciate where um, it just has a lot to do with recognizing one's lack of control over a situation and also a willingness to be surprised. Um, yeah, I think that that Esalen is like a decent example too, which you talk about in the book, which is this like beautiful place in Big Sur, California, that for decades was this like retreat that was really meant simply to be a retreat, and it was kind of kind of like pretty hippied out spot, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> and people would go there to uh, to just kind of like be there. And now it is like a, it's like a Silicon Valley hotspot. It was also in like um, Big Little Lies, the people from oh, Big Little Lies. Yeah, go to Ellison, Esalen. And, uh, but it has become this place where it's like the whole point of going there is actually to improve your performance in your actual life. Yeah. And that thing has just turned, like the whole idea of that place has turned. Yeah, I mean, like, this is what I what I was saying earlier about how capitalism can appropriate anything. It's like you can take the most um, not goal-directed thing and make it goal-directed. Like, you can try to make it work for you. And to me, that just negates the entire, like, spirit of the whole thing in the first place if you're trying to escape that mentality. Mm -hmm. How tied is this book into all this thinking you've been doing? I mean, you grew up in Cupertino and live in Oakland. That place is a radically different place than it was when you were a kid. How much of this book is a response to just uh, sort of Silicon Valley and that being where you operate? So I grew up in Cupertino and I, I now live in Oakland and I lived in San Francisco before. But I will say that I feel like a lot of what happened to San Francisco had already happened by the time I moved there. So I don't feel like I firsthand witnessed like the first wave of gentrification or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but I think that just like being around Silicon Valley and then and just like knowing a lot of people who work in tech and my parents both worked at big old technology companies uh, like HP. Um, Maybe it's just made it so that it's something that's in the background for me, like Mm -hmm. just as something that I have been aware of. And I do remember like after I graduated from my MFA program, 
that I was really frustrated with the way that art, the category art and technology was framed and talked about and exhibited. And it felt like a very Silicon Valley influenced kind of flavor. And it was not until I found this group of people uh, through this event that's called Living Room Light Exchange, but we, we meet in a different person's living room every month. And it's just a bunch of, I feel like at the time it was a bunch of new media people who were annoyed by the same thing. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of overlap with people who go to IO. And it really helped me figure out like what my problem was with the art and technology conversation, um, which felt very sort of, you know, like 3D scanning for the sake of 3D scanning, like things that are newfangled, like things that could be in the background of a corporate holiday party, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I have had my work be in the background of a corporate holiday party. Really? Oh, yeah. In New York. Yeah. Like you sold it to a company for their holiday party? No, th- this is like a really long time ago when I did not know what I was doing. They Now you got it all figured out? Yeah, I think so. I think I know. I, like, I just, you know, when you get out of uh, school and you're, like, just trying to get, like, some show somewhere, like, if some place in New York is like, yeah, we're going to have a quote-unquote solo show of your work, like, in our, like, startup gallery space or something, like, that sounds good, yeah. you know? Um, And so I think I, like, shipped my work over and then I, <laughs> yeah, I showed up. And it was clearly a holiday party. And my work was just like on the walls and they made no effort to introduce me to anybody. And I was just standing there. Yeah, it was horrible. This is actually a big part of how I met my boyfriend when I was 21 in New York. Like I was doing a like a summer program thing. And then we didn't talk again for like five years. And then I knew he lived here and I was coming here for that weird show and I had a feeling it was going to be weird. So I invited him because <laughs> I didn't know that many people who lived in New York. And so he eventually showed up and then we were just kind of like standing in the corner, just like, this is so weird. I was like, thank you for coming. <laughs> <laughs> so it worked out. Yeah. Um, we should talk about writing. Yeah. All right. So you give this talk, resonates with people. Was it your idea to write a book? Did someone approach you? It was not my idea. Two people approached me. One was an agent that thought, It could be one of those, like, how to be creative books. And I was really not interested in that. So I just let that one slide. And then uh, Adam Greenfield, who is an author, uh, he wrote Radical Technologies recently. He just emailed me and was like, I think this should be, or have you ever considered, you know, making this into a book? And I think I was just kind of like, oh, yeah, I don't know. And then he kind of like kept on me about it. So I really give him a lot of credit for everything that happened. And yeah, so he was really kind of the person who got the ball rolling. And then I had to figure out, like, how do you write a book proposal? And How'd you figure it out? Um, Again, I got very lucky. His editor, who was not even my editor, sent me some, like, sample book proposals just as, like, a favor. So once you you, uh, sent your proposals in and and got your deal, like, how do you set about writing a book? I mean, you had written some things, but Mm -hmm. not a ton, ton? Yeah, not a lot. So how do you write a book? Like, how do you write the book? What's your, what was the, what was the process? How do you approach it? I honestly, I thought that writing the book proposal was the hardest part because that's when you have to kind of get your piles of stuff together. That felt very arduous to me, both because some of the subjects I felt like I definitely was not an expert on. And so I really like thoroughly researched those things. 
And also because like I have this problem of being interested in too many things, like just narrowing down the chapter topics was really difficult. And that's, you know, some of that evolved, obviously, when I wrote the book. But by the time I got to actually writing the book, it felt more like like I had a sort of scaffolding or something. And Mm -hmm. I was just really carefully filling in all of the spaces and then occasionally making some like one of the chapters like ended up splitting into two chapters just because it was clear that it just wasn't going to fit. But it really, it didn't feel, it was honestly like one of the best times of my life. I don't know. I just like, I have the summers off because I teach and I just would go to the studio and I would just work like all day. And then at my studio is right next to a really good beer bar and I would just have someone meet me, like some, I'd meet a friend, have a beer, like go home, do it again the next day. It was like just really great. (laughs) You would just write all day? Yeah. How different did that feel than you know, like working on the, uh, like the dump project or one of the, like the shows you've done. It felt the same because when I was at the dump, that was also in the summer. I had the same exact schedule. I would show up, you know, you have a studio there. I would, you know, go into the pie. I'd put on all my like safety gear, go in, like get some objects. And then I would spend the rest of the day researching them and then go home and do the, yeah. Like that's apparently like, that is just like how I enjoy spending my time like the routine of it. Yeah. But I guess I mean more like the actual work, like sitting down and figuring out how you're going to express these ideas in writing. Like is that that just it sounds like that was not a challenge. Uh it it felt like translating almost. Mm-hmm. Um because the way that I work is so collagey. You know, I'm a collage artist, so like that's how I work. Like sometimes I would write things out on like half index cards and move them around which if you've ever seen like my earliest visual work that's what it looks like (laughs) um and so once I had a configuration that I was happy with I was almost like I was just transcribing that image or like that grid of stuff into like linear text Mm -hmm. and was there like um a reader in your mind when you were working on that I think I just um maybe was thinking about I mean honestly I was thinking about my friends who, uh, similarly to the the original talk, I was thinking about um, in that moment of paralysis, like seeing that my some of my friends were having the same feeling. So it's kind of addressed to people who make stuff or feel compelled to make stuff, but are also burned out and are being forced to sort of like sell their stuff or sell parts of themselves and, and seeing that take over more and more of their lives. How long did it take you to write? I wrote it actually really very quickly. Um, <laughs> I feel like you're like slightly embarrassed by all of this. Yeah. Like, like it should have been harder or something. No, I mean, well, I I basically wrote it in during summer break. So like starting in June and ending at the end of September, mm-hmm. which is not. And it's pretty that, fast. That's, yeah. Seems very fast. But it's also, I mean, it's because I knew that that is the time that I had once I, I teach full time. So once September comes around I'm kind of like that's what I'm doing so it's almost like I had to just do it in the time that I had or wait another <laughs> wait another year <laughs> <laughs> did it um did any part of it feel like journalism to you not necessarily um it felt more just like traditional research like I spent a lot of days for some reason all of the very unrelated subjects that I talk about in the book many of them are on the basement level of the Stanford library <laughs> Um, like labor history is down there, like communes are down there. That's your spot. 
yeah, I'm very familiar with the basement. I've been spending, still spending a lot of time in the basement lately. Um, so it felt, yeah. I mean, honestly, I was reminded of like writing my undergrad thesis was like what I was reminded of. <laughs> <laughs> so you finished the thing, you write your book in four months, it would have been like the summer of 2018. Mm-hmm. And you sort of hadn't thought past the thing coming out. Like you finished it, you send it to your editor in September. And what were your expectations? I felt like when I was sending it in, I had no idea whether it was good or not because I've never written a book before. <laughs> um, and, you know, my boyfriend had read it, but that was it. And so it kind of just felt like sending it off. I I wouldn't have been surprised to get a message back like, what is this? <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, what is this garbage? No, um, not that, but just like it's a weird book, right? Like it's it's got a lot of stuff going on yeah Um, what are you thinking of when you say that it's just it jumps around a lot it is a at times odd combination of things from unrelated sources that make sense to me to be together but i think you know that potentially don't make sense to someone else and that's i think that's the thing i was actually interested in which is like how important to you was it for the thing to connect to other people like this act of translation that you felt like you were doing, how focused were you on the end results of it? I was very focused on the idea of it being useful. Like, I mean, I know, like, I think my the title of my introduction is Surviving Usefulness, yeah. but <laughs> ironically, but I, um, I wouldn't have even set out to write the book at all if I didn't feel compelled by this idea. I mean, even the talk originally was like, what can I say in this moment that's useful? That's not just adding more yeah, noise. You started with sort of saying like, I did this for you. Yeah. Or, or like, this is, I hope this is useful Yeah. Uh, to the people in the audience. And, and that's maybe why this stuck in my head so much was just the book feels so uh, personal and also unique. And I'm interested in sort of from a, like a process standpoint and a writing standpoint how focused you were on trying to make sure that it achieved that. And then if you were, how you do that? I'm not really sure. I mean, I don't, it was something that I was definitely like, it was a goal that I had in mind. Like it's, it is important to me that ultimately it makes sense to someone and, and there's a point to them reading it. And it's not just self-indulgent because it it could be like, there's a lot of stuff about me, (laughs) you know, it's about like how much I like birds. Um, and I really like birds. Yeah. A lot. Um, so I I think I was kind of aware of that. But I had to read so many books to write this book. And some of them were really, really amazing examples of what I was trying to do. So like Braiding Sweetgrass, which I quote the hell out of in mm-hmm. my book, is this amazing example of bringing two very different disciplines and backgrounds together. But, you know, every chapter is kind of like a different story. And somehow it all ties together so amazingly and there's this sensibility and argument that runs through the whole thing that's incredibly clear and you by the end you feel very satisfied and like it was a very whole experience so and there were several books that I read that that were models of that and so I think maybe I was just trying to like mimic that or Mm -hmm. that sort of made its way into my book I do want to talk about these uh, these other pieces of writing you've done, uh, particularly that, that Amazon story in the Times, which also broke my brain, but in a different way. Um, <laughs> but I just I just want to stick on how to do nothing for a second. There are these two kind of parallel pieces of it, and and one is 
our relationship to technology and the way that we are all sort of contributing to the the sort of like capitalistic attention economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's this other piece, which is this kind of like ecological experience. And I wonder if maybe you could sort of try and distill that piece of it and what the point you're trying to make is and maybe how those two things relate to each other. Yeah, sure. Um, I think that I really enjoy in general putting different things next to each other and seeing what happens. That's like what I've done in all of my art so far. And I don't think I was necessarily setting out to do that when I wrote the book proposal. It was more just um, at the same time that I was thinking about social media, I also happened to be getting very curious about things like bird watching and you know my bioregion. I was commissioned to write an essay about bioregionalism by uh, this journal that SFMOMA runs online. And I had not known what bioregionalism was before that. So it just it was this weird thing of I was learning about two things at the same time. And then I started to notice all of these weird parallels between them. Like I would read about, you know, how, you know, things like monoculture versus like a, a stable, diverse ecosystem. I would read about that and I'd be like, wow, that sounds really familiar <laughs> from this other context, yeah. you know, or even things like erosion it's a long story, but I had to learn a lot about flood control <laughs> at one point. And I was just like, even just the image of a stabilized creek bank that is stabilized because it has roots and there's things growing in it and it slows down the water versus like uh, just like a channel where like the water is just taking all of the soil with it. And it's just like eroding into this like whole nightmare. Like I'm like, wow, that sounds like a pile on on Twitter mm-hmm. where like no one is stopping or slowing down long enough to gather any kind of context. And like, it just gets faster and faster and no one wants to stand in its way. And so it's just, I just kept having these moments of seeing an echo from one and the other. And eventually I was like, okay, well, what if I just like actually try to line these up? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of what I was trying to do. And how, I mean, how do they line up? Or, or I guess to the degree that like you feel prescriptive in the book, what's your like, um, what's your ideological, ecological experience? I think that the things that we're looking for and like the feelings of insecurity and things that would drive you toward using social media more are things whose not answers but like things that can be very meaningfully addressed in experiences with ecology so you know like there's a turning point in my talk where I learned that crows are really smart and can recognize human faces and I like befriend these crows who by the way I still know (laughs) <laughs> still come by every day. Every day? Yep. For their peanuts? Yep. They have accosted me on the street before. Really? Like a block or so from my house because <laughs> they, they recognize human faces. So, and I, yeah, I sort of have this moment of like looking at them, looking at me and seeing myself as like a human animal that is inhabiting like an actual physical, tangible space with other animals um, and finding that that is just so incredibly different from how like Jenny as avatar feels online. And so I just, I I find that things like ecology and bioregionalism are helpful in grounding someone. It's a really nice model for the self. As I was saying earlier, it's kind of like a, an entity is just like a loosely held together community of stuff that's in a wider community. And it's also a really lovely model of difference without boundary. So there are specific bioregions, but there's no hard line between those either. So you don't, you can't be in the Pacific Northwest and be like, 
driving and then there's a sign that's like, you're no longer in the Pacific right. Northwest. You'll just see certain types of plant communities drop off gradually. But then there'll be a whole kind of weird hybrid exchange zone between those two. So, and obviously that, you know, sounds a lot like culture or even cuisine or language. And so I just, I, I find that there are like antidotes in ecology to things that I find really harmful about the attention economy. Right. And it's, so it's it's not just that like um, opting out of the attention con- economy in and of itself, you and I have both seen a million like, I'm leaving Twitter posts <laughs> and whatever, yeah. and they, like everyone comes back. Yeah. So it's not just like departure but actually like what you can do with that time in the real physical world. Yeah. And, and what you can do to address, like, I think I'm speaking for myself, but I've noticed that the times when I'm extra susceptible to like being on Twitter all the time or like just constantly checking back on things is like when I am feeling personally insecure or when I am dealing with existential dread about climate change or just like things that are in the news that are actual, like real horrible things. And I am having real horrible feelings about them. And that in and of itself is not part of the attention economy. That is just a human being like having feelings and reacting to things. And so for me, it's like a question of like, okay, what do I do with that? Like I can either like feed it back into the attention economy and actually get more of it back, like more anxiety and more existential dread. Or I can like go this other direction and not necessarily like solve any of these problems for myself or or feel better in a literal way but i can for instance like go to the local meeting of the california native plant society <laughs> which i find very heartening you know I'm, I'm, i am a little glad that you can't say that with a straight face because I, I read it yesterday and i was like that that's got to be like a slightly goofy experience yeah no i mean it's like i mean the california native plant society is very serious um yeah i imagine yeah. that they're not fucking around yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but yeah just like Either spending time with, I say alone. I think I say in the book that there's no such thing as alone in nature to me because if you're aware of the things that are living around you, it doesn't feel like you're alone. But either spending time somewhere like that or spending time with other people who care about the same things. Mm -hmm. Like these are places where I can bring those feelings and they don't destroy me. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Do you wish that you lived in a different time? Like a different era? No. I don't think so. I mean, as much as like the Epicurus Garden School sounds really great. Um, no, I, I've i never read about a time where I was like, ooh, that sounds perfect or something. Yeah. But I think on top of that, um, one of the quotes that I use in the book that I actually come back to a lot is the Thomas Merton quote um, where he says something about like, you know, I can't choose the time that I live in, but I can choose my attitude toward it. And then at the end, he ends by saying, like, you have to be responsible to your time, like your time, which is the present. Like this like insistence on like you live in the present and you don't have a decision about that. And he's saying it in the in the context of feeling responsibility and not turning away from the world. And I think like this would be a really easy time to do that. But people have always been faced with like you know really scary problems and i i have more of an appreciation for things that seem like really unprecedented contemporary dystopian elements i have more of an appreciation of them in context of a longer history that leads up to them Mm -hmm. if you can think about like the the run-up to giving that talk in 2017 and maybe how you felt in the days after the election um how does that compare with how you feel now 
having like written this book been out um providing additional context to it for yeah. lots of people <laughs> for whom it resonated how do those two jennies compare in a weird way i feel like i feel like things are worse now and so like I, things in the news feel worse to me um yeah. and so sometimes i feel like 2017 Jenny wrote the book for 2019 Jenny. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I need my own book now more than I did when I wrote it. Uh Uh-huh. It's great that it's there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Thanks, 2017 Jenny. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I had a kind of presence of mind then that I find increasingly difficult to achieve now. (laughs) I do want to ask you about this Amazon thing and then I'll let you go. Um, you wrote this thing in the Times in November last year uh, that started um, with a package and then led to like just an absolute like Byzantine maze of preposterous Amazon storefronts and then ended with uh, Newsweek and the very opaque Christian organization that took over Newsweek. It's a crazy labyrinth that, that story is like almost impossible to explain i don't even i, I don't even know I how have a hard time explaining it it's very yeah. hard <laughs> uh and it's bananas like it's it's nuts it felt it's funny when you said bananas i was gonna say that like the most of the tweets i saw about at the time were either bananas or nuts yeah like, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's just crazy and it's one of those things i mean not unlike the book reading that story it felt like uh, I was sort of experiencing it along with you. Like you just kept falling deeper and deeper into this rabbit hole. And it's reported, but it feels to me like you're just kind of like reporting what was happening, not necessarily like going out and asking a lot of people to explain it to you. Yeah. That's a long preamble to this question, but I guess I, I wanted to know what that experience was like for you and then whether you felt like that was journalism, that the final version of it. I don't think it's journalism. I saw people calling it that online and I was almost like uncomfortable with the label because I'm not a journalist. And I think that journalism involves a very specific set of skills and not least of which is like talking to people, (laughs) you know, like uh, calling them up and, uh, you know, getting answers from people and then like triangulating those and, and doing, you know, a certain type of research and it's also journalism is like it's about the story right it's trying to communicate like a story like some information and this was much more like let me tell you about this crazy (laughs) wormhole that i fell into in the order that i fell into it um so that you too can have this experience and some of that was unintentional but some of it was also i think like a rhetorical move because something that i've been interested in for a long time is like the person as a subject in relationship to like some kind of crazy like postmodern situation like global capitalism uh for for example example. um (laughs) and and sort of like looking at the system through the eyes of that subject or it doesn't even have to be a subject like when i was at the dump i felt like i was trying to talk about logistics and you know shipping and manufacturing over and over again through the lens of an object that went through it. So I feel like, yeah, part of the reason it reads the way it does is because I'm trying to provide some kind of, not map, but like an image of this crazy sprawling network 
through the eyes of someone who isn't a journalist and who doesn't understand what's going on and is surprised and horrified. And, you know, one of the responses that I got a lot was like, this is how I feel whenever I'm just on the internet. Or like, this is like, I know this feeling because you you know it at being that person that's going through it. What's that experience? Like, you're just totally disoriented. Um, like, I have that paragraph at the end about how I'm like standing in that bookstore, which is like, sort of reverse engineered by this weird website for like this brand that was bought by the people in this like organization like standing in a physical space and seeing it kind of shot through with all of these like physical products but also from these weird websites and just having the digital and the physical mixed together in this way that for a human being who like is accustomed to a certain like linearity and time and space is like really hard to fathom. Mm -hmm. I think that that's actually a really common experience. Like there's, it's almost like we need a word for that, right? Maybe there is a word, (laughs) but you see it everywhere, right? It's like planning your vacation around what has been the most Instagrammed thing and then showing up there and having your experience just totally framed either literally you're trying to get the same photos or just conceptually it's already been framed by something like Instagram there's a mountain in East San Jose that it became very popular to climb up and take this very specific photo on top of this weird pole. And people started going up a side of the mountain that's just faster to get up there. And it was eroding the mountain. Like, the, you know, like these, there's these instances of like total like interpenetration of digital and physical that we all live in or like a lot of us live in. And it feels weird and creepy but it's still at this moment kind of hard to put your finger on like why and also like how and do you feel like that's in some sense what you're trying to do right now is just like put your finger on that thing yeah i think so and kind of disentangle it a little bit but both of that amazon story which is literally so byzantine that you and i cannot explain it right now <laughs> like like anyone who's listening to this who didn't read that story will have no idea what we're talking about because it's nuts and bananas yeah and the book too like, it's interesting that you say if it's a self-help book, it's a self-help book that'll leave you feeling more confused at the end. Like, the Amazon story is totally that way. Yeah. I read it twice this morning. I have no idea what happened. Yeah, I still don't really know what happened. I mean... And it, it all it does is make plain that we're living in an incredibly bizarre moment and that even something like Amazon, which feels as stood up and solidified and it is what it is as anything on the internet in a way it has all kinds of cracks and artifice and bullshit yeah it's fascinating i mean one of my favorite artists is um mark lombardi um he made these amazing drawings like huge like physically very large they're like circular diagrams where the whole diagram is a circle and then every point is a circle with text inside and they have all these arrows going back and forth and they're all of the kind of financial ties between different organizations and donors and individuals and it's basically like he has several of them and oftentimes it's basically like a picture of corruption but i i have this feeling when i i i know that there's information and also i'm not comparing my work to his because he's actually like elucidating something and he's like making these connections between like the money went here and then the money goes here but the overall effect of standing in front of one of those drawings is not necessarily one of clarity. It's more a feeling of being impressed at how interconnected everything is. 
and like how corrupt something is. But it doesn't leave you with like an aha feeling. So what happens next? Like how do you keep um, trying to put your finger on that thing and disentangle it? Because it, it feels like it's getting more tangled. I often start with some like weird background feeling that I have. So, you know, like how to do nothing came out of this like moment of anxiety and paralysis for me and that I was observing around me. Um, and now I'm really interested in this time issue because that is another background issue of my life. Like a, that I never have enough time B that time feels more like money than ever before for me. Um, and I live in the Bay area. So I am very exposed to the gig economy, like both people who work in it and the companies themselves. And so I'm finding myself kind of morbidly fascinated with the mechanics and the kind of history of how this got so granular and how it kind of like worked its way into like the crevices of life. How do you, I mean, I assume you're working on something about that. I don't really know what, I'm just interested in it right now. I don't know what's going to happen. Like, this is the thing. This is, this is the question I asked you at the beginning. It's like, how's your brain? Like, that's a big, that's a big idea. Yeah, it is. The history of time. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, how do you sort of attack thinking about that? Or is it just so natural that it, it happens the way it's going to happen? I think it's it happens the way it's going to happen. I At the end of How to Do Nothing, I talk about do-nothing farming, which was this method of rice farming that a Japanese farmer came up with in the 70s, where it sort of flouts all of the customary traditions of rice farming like all the things you're supposed to do it just doesn't do any of them like it doesn't flood the field um, there's no chemical inputs no very little labor comparatively you just have to do you have to just be very watchful and maintain a balance and do everything at the right time like you have to be a good steward and at the end of the day ironically that rice farm produces more rice and is rehabilitates the soil and etc cetera, etc cetera. it's like permaculture basically and i think about that all the time I even wrote an essay for the Creative Independent. Say it's called like "Do Nothing Farming for the Mind" or something. I can't remember the title, but as a model for making, where you you create a space and you you remain watchful over it, you don't let it get taken over by anything, but you also aren't. It's not a an industrial farm, right? You're not like corn will go here and <laughs> uh, soybeans will go here and like must like increase yield like every year, and you're just like totally exhausting the soil, and it's like very over engineered. Um, and so like my, my model of making things is just like, I don't really know how my brain works. I just throw things in there and then I just wait <laughs> <laughs> and then like something will happen. And it's happened enough times now that I have some trust in that process. And so some, some combination of like, I sleep, I walk and I talk to friends about it and that's all I can really do. Like I am very careful not to like force anything. So you just see what comes. Yeah. I'm very curious to see what will happen. Uh, hey, Jenny, thank you for doing this. Thanks. It's been my pleasure. I'm glad your brain's all right. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor who uh, did a particularly exemplary job this week is Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern is Louisa Garbowit. Our sponsors, MailChimp, 
Go to readthissummer.com. Find some fantastic books to read curated by Jenna Wortham, Pit Writers, and Substack. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.